The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hey everyone, my name is Donna and this is Phoenix Fire. Today's live production is brought to you in part by Prairie Sky Recovery in Lipsig, Saskatchewan. Today's guest, Emily, is a mother of two with 19 months recovery from alcohol, and we're going to hear about her journey right after this. I spent a year and a half on the streets. Addiction took me there. Pain took me there. My name is Donna, person in recovery, domestic violence survivor, mother of two. I spent years running from myself, but no more. I've come to find peace and I'm not here to light a candle. I am here to set fire to the darkness and give voice to the voiceless. I hope you'll join me and my guests as we face the stigma around addiction and tear down the walls of oppression. This is not a safe space. This is a brave space. This is Phoenix Fire. And let's bring in Emily. Hey, Emily. Hi. How's it going today? Oh, pretty good. How are you? Good. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming today. Uh, is there, okay. pardon me? Oh, I just said thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> is there uh, is there anything you'd like to say before we get started? Uh, just shout out to all my peeps watching. Thanks for always supporting me and having my back. Nice. Um, okay, so here we go. So let's start off with, uh, tell us what your childhood was like, Emily. Um, I had a beautiful childhood um, for as much as my parents could give me, they gave, and as much as they could love, they loved. Um, it just felt limitless. Uh, I was safe and protected and cared for. I grew up in a Christian home my whole life. Um, and it was it was happy it was a a good happy home um i did go through some things in my childhood um apart from my family's control uh and that kind of set the ball rolling in in the uh, depression and anxiety and uh trauma that I carried with me throughout my early adulthood and into addiction. And uh, what were your parents like? Uh, I have beautiful parents. Um, my mom is 
I call her my little mama because she's she's five <laughs> foot one and I'm five foot nine and it just makes no sense. <laughs> but uh, she's so soft spoken and kind and gentle. And my dad is just funny and the banter back and forth that happens in our home is it's it's always been something that just it makes me feel seen and heard like they just they've they've been there through every single bit of what I've gone through and they've tried um in every way shape or form to support and the the dedication that they showed and expressed in walking through understanding addiction and what happened in my life was monumental um just sharing in that recovery together has been huge for us and has brought us closer than we ever were. And I didn't really think that was possible. That's amazing. And so what was, uh, like, what was school like for you? It was good. Uh, for the most part, I, uh, I moved quite a bit in my early life. Um, we landed in Fort McMurray when just before I turned 10. And so I went through the last half of elementary and high school here. And uh, it was good, you know, like nothing really major, just it was my first, I didn't really like experiment with anything for the first couple years of high school, but once, uh, once grade 11 hit, that's when I kind of wanted to know what was out there and um, felt like I was pretty sheltered in, in my home, just being raised in a Christian environment. And uh, I don't know, it's like the first time that you get exposed to what's actually out there and within your reach. Mm -hmm. Did you make friends easily? Yeah, I always had friends. Um, I've always been outgoing and the funny one, I guess, a little bit weird. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, it was good. I, I did kind of bounce around between friend groups a bit in high school. Um, I had my like church friends that I grew up with my whole life. And then I had the friends that I made in high school. Um, and a lot of us are still very much in touch today. There's some of them that have been absolutely phenomenal in the support that they've given me through my recovery. That's, that's fantastic. So how old were you the first time you got loaded? First time what, sorry? Sorry, the first time you got loaded. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was 16. Um, it was in the pit and for people who live in Fort McMurray, they know where I'm talking about. Um, it was winter and it was not okay. I, um, <laughs> I told my parents I was sleeping over at a friend's house and going to a movie and, uh, yeah, we went to the pit. We didn't bring any alcohol with us. We were 16 and uh, I didn't understand what that meant. Like, why, why are we not bringing anything? Uh, and I learned very quickly it's because you just kind of drink whatever people bring. And it was my first time drinking. So I had no idea 
what does what and mixing things and uh -oh. uh, yeah, it was a rough go. <laughs> and so were you all in after that or? No. Um, I recognized that in that moment um, that I didn't want to stop. Even once I got that like very drunk feeling, I, there was still no like, I should stop now. I've had enough. It was just sure I'll take more oh you have this oh yeah. like I just kind of like <laughs> get in a no... candy store <laughs> yeah like I didn't care and I actually looked at somebody I was like if I throw up will I still be drunk <laughs> <laughs> and they were like yeah I'm like oh okay <laughs> like I had no idea what I was doing um <laughs> someone should have been like this one needs to go but uh <laughs> No, after that, I, I didn't, alcohol didn't really become a normal part of my life until I was 25. Okay. Uh, so how did you, how did you do in high school? Like, did you graduate? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I graduated and, uh, I didn't go to college right away. I got married, um, right out of high school. Um, a year later, and then I had a baby a year later, and then another baby a year after that. So, okay. Uh, did you and your husband party together? I don't know if I'd really call it partying. We didn't really go out drinking a whole lot. It was very few and far between, just with some of his work friends. But we did um, once 2015 came around uh drinking became a, a normal part of our lives together at home okay and i'm just you had mentioned that back when the, when alcohol came into the home you had felt that that was pretty much the only way to connect at that time yeah yeah we we weren't um great at communicating uh it was there was a lot of issues uh that kind of transpired in our marriage for the first five years that that pushed a lot of wedges between us um and at that point i i just felt like the only way that we the only time we really just like got along and it was fine was when we were drinking mm -hmm. so that's it just became a normal part of our lives together because it was it just became all we had mm -hmm. and and how long did that last for um up until around july of 2019 okay and uh You've mentioned that in about 2018, your family started to kind of take notice that something might not be quite right. Um, yes. Um, there was a few times that it was brought up, like, you're drinking too much, or I would ruin events because that's what we do. You know, <laughs> yeah. let's have a nice Mother's Day charcuterie board with some wine. Where's Emily? Drowning in the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like it, there's just, like I said, there was no off switch. So like when mm-hmm. I would get together with family members and we would all be enjoying a glass of wine together, there's no such thing as enjoying a glass of wine to me. Mm-hmm. It was just, I enjoyed blacking out. Right. So I can relate to that. That wasn't normal, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, but yeah, it was little things like that. Just a little subtle um did you really need to get that drunk or, you know, those types of, of remarks. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was a couple times I tried like abstaining for a week or two weeks or, you know, like a dry month or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have like the celebratory blackout session after. <laughs> Nailed it. And, <laughs> and at that time, did anybody suggest to you that, maybe you might consider getting some help or is not until 2019 uh, did the, we need to um, inject ourselves into here. She needs help. We need to try to figure out a way to communicate. But I, I was extremely um, abrasive. Mm -hmm. Nobody could talk to me about it. I, I, it felt like an attack, right? Um, because it had become such a massive part of who I was that the thought of separating myself from it felt absolutely impossible. And to, to like say that you're drinking too much or alcohol is not good for you or whatever, it just made me feel like it was like a personal attack because it, it was it was like so much of who I was. Mm-hmm. So I would just, you couldn't talk to me. I would just lash out. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty commonplace. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so you talked about in, in 2019, you went out without your husband and mm-hmm. you blacked out and, and, and something happened. Are you comfortable elaborating on that a little bit or... Yeah, I um, I put myself in a pretty high risk situation, and um, I was assaulted, and it was pretty uh, insane for me to wake up from a blackout in a situation like that, mm-hmm. or come to from a blackout. I don't even know what you do from a blackout. Like it's, I feel like. <laughs> I feel like normally you just wake up and you're like, what happened? But this was like, it was different. And I don't know if it was like what was happening just like shook me to the point where it like snapped me out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I ran, I ran out. I looked at the street names to figure out where I was. Um, I called a cab. I went home uh, and he was working nights. Um, The whole next day I was just trying to like, hold it together. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do or what to say. Uh, and mm-hmm. as soon as he left for work, I broke and I called my sister and I called my mom and I was, I was having such a severe panic attack that I was just on the floor and like trembling and weeping because not only did like what happened just shake me, mm-hmm. but the thought of 
this is what he's going to use to leave me. That's right. what I knew that there wasn't going to be grace for me in that moment. And I needed it. Yeah. And that's what, that's what broke everything. Okay. <clears throat> and, uh, like you had talked about, uh, like you did, you did tell him and that he mm -hmm. did, in, like, as he you suspected home, what happened yeah. and he used that to, to leave the relationship. Is it was the turning point of okay. where the relationship kind of began to the demise of it. If you really want to disintegrate. Say. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So I did tell him, I called him that night when, when I was like freaking out with my mom there and he came home from work and mm -hmm. I told him that evening. Okay. And in spite of, of that, uh, you guys still did your 10 year vows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it probably should have been uh, canceled. Uh, but it was almost to a point where things had progressed too far along in planning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it felt like if you've made it to 10 years, you should be able to have a 10 year vow renewal. And if you canceled it now, everyone would be like, well, what do you mean? What's wrong? Right. And it's just the facade. But when you really look back on everything, it was just facade after facade. So mm -hmm. it would have fit the mold, but not to anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand being in that situation. Um, you had talked about uh, earlier, like at some point in the marriage, there was, he had had a couple of affairs and you had attended counseling by yourself. Yes. Yeah. I did go to marriage counseling alone for a year. Um, I just needed to learn how to navigate through those things and how they impacted me as a woman. Um, I carried a lot of emotions and feelings of inadequacy and um, resentment and there was just, I didn't really look at, I didn't really look at his side. I looked at how can I make this about what I'm not doing and what I'm not measuring up as. Mm -hmm. I, I blamed myself and I carried all the blame and and not even that he was casting the blame. I I was doing that to myself. I'm really good at self-deprecation. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's kind of, I knew, I knew very early on in our marriage that uh, things were not as they should be. And uh, it always came back to, What's wrong with me? What do I need to change? What do I need to be? How can I fix this? How can I be what he wants and what he needs? And, you know, like it, and it just ate me alive to the point where I realized that I absolutely cannot be what is, what is required of me to be, to fit what this idea of this perfect person who has everything together and who's 
just like, I don't know, the dream, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm not a dream. And I couldn't be. And when I needed him to show up and be there during that period of my life, when I came to him in pieces, Mm -hmm. um, after everything I'd done to try to like hold our marriage together for 10 years to just be let go like that. It wasn't even that I'm like, I still couldn't blame. I still couldn't, I still had to blame myself. Mm -hmm. That's, that's all I knew how to do. I wasn't worth the effort. I wasn't worth forgiveness. I wasn't worth grace. And so how long after your 10-year vows, like you made a comment about like the alcohol and your husband left simultaneously. And then that's when things really spiraled for you. How how long after the 10-year vow mark? Um, So this... uh, this thing that happened was in June and our 10 year vow renewal was in July. And then, um, we went to Vegas after our vow renewal and it was not okay. And then we came home and, uh, that's when restrictions were kind of set in place in the home of, of alcohol being there. Um, I was sneaking it for a while. I would hide it in little places in the house. And even then I didn't really look at it like that's a problem. I looked at it as, well, he says I can't, so I can't, but I will when he can't see me. Mm-hmm. Um, the first kind of like snap that happened in my head of maybe this is an issue was when my, uh, nine-year-old daughter said, oh, daddy's gone to work now, so you can get your wine. And I'm like, oh, that one cut. Yeah. But I still got my wine. So <laughs> didn't cut that bad, I guess. Um, yeah, so he was he was limiting what I could have in the house. And if he did, if he was around me when I was drinking, it was pretty volatile. Um, there was no understanding of like, maybe you can't stop. It was looked at as a choice and that I was choosing it. And even in my own body, I wasn't recognizing that this was no longer a choice. Mm-hmm. I had to, it's all I had. It's the only thing in my life at that point that did for me exactly what I needed it to do. Mm-hmm. So I held on to that. And I let everything else slip through my fingers. And then and by September, I believe, of that year, you went to college. I did. How did that go? I, <gasps> <Not good. laughs> um, I wasn't okay at all. And I should not have went to college. But it was already, I was already registered. So I went. Mm-hmm. And uh I was really happy to find that they had a bar in the college. <laughs> I thought that was super convenient. Yes, absolutely. Um, looking back, I don't, but then mm-hmm. I did. So, yeah, you know, you would 
you do your first class, you'd go to the lounge for lunch and a pitcher of beer and whatever else you want. Mm-hmm. And then you're playing pool instead of going to your second class. And, you know, like, it's just, it was, it was really bad. And I, I really did not live up to what I know now that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't apply myself in any way, shape or form to college at that time. And, and I couldn't. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't all right. I was mentally, emotionally, completely unstable. And um, it was around, it was in December that I dropped out uh, because I just couldn't keep up anymore. I couldn't, it was it. trying to live a, this double life, even though I guarantee you, I was not good at it because everybody could see it. And I thought like, Oh, no one sees anything. Nobody knows. They, they saw, they saw <laughs> <Somehow>. it all. <laughs> and I'm like, mm-hmm. I thought I was hiding that. Like, I didn't realize you knew. Like one of, one of my professors was like, I think we need to have a little talk. Like she was like my age and she was like, I'm worried about you. And I'm like, what? But- <laughs> <laughs> it's the problem here. Right? You, you started I'm fine. I think you mentioned during this time frame as well, you'd been reported as missing. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. after, um, after I dropped out, things just started to like plummet. Um, I felt like I had nothing left except alcohol and alcohol was still being controlled in my home. So I couldn't, I couldn't have alcohol in the home. So I would run away. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point there was, there was a, a huge fight. I ended up being put in the basement. Um, I had pajamas and a coat and shoes on cause I was trying to leave, but he didn't want me to go anywhere. So he put me in the basement and he went to call my parents. I didn't have a phone. He had my phone and I didn't want to. I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So I stacked up a few bricks and catapulted myself out of a very tiny window. That's like up high because you're in a basement. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't know how I did it. The window is really tiny. Like it's an old home. The windows Mm -hmm. are small and they're the windows that like flap. (laughs) So it was like flapping down on me as I was like trying to get out through it. I remember attempting something like that Oh yeah, from a similar window when I was 16 and completely wasted. My girlfriend was trying to push me through the window and it was right in front of our garden and it just rained. So by the time I got out the window, I was covered in mud. And then I thought my parents didn't know, but next day I caught hell. But anyways. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I was 29 and it was minus 40. (laughs) 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 So... Yeah, I just, uh, I took off. I, I kind of like house hopped. Uh, and I didn't have my phone. So no one could call me and see where I was. And I really did not care. Mm-hmm. I found 20 bucks in my pocket. And I went to the liquor store and I bought a bottle of wine and I, I drank it in a paper bag. And I'm like, wow, in your pajamas and yeah, in my PJs <laughs> in minus 42. <laughs> Things will do. So I guess, yeah, I, I ended up being brought to the hospital 
that night. Mm -hmm. And I got so mad because I had just been in the hospital a week before this for like, when I dropped out of college, I was like suicidal. Like I was not okay. And, um, I went and saw like crisis help because I, I was ready to commit suicide. And so I had just been there a week prior and these girls that I was with, they actually like threw me out of the back of the car <laughs> and left me there by myself. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. So obviously I didn't even go through triage. I just sat in the waiting room and I stepped outside and this police officer is walking towards me. And I'm like, just look away. <laughs> and he's like, are you Emily? And I was like, Hmm? No. And he's like, you match the description. I was like, what description? He's like, you've been reported as a missing person. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so I got driven to a friend's house who then drove me home. Okay. And uh, you and your husband are still together, at least living in the same house at this point is yes. that correct right okay and at that point at that point right yes but by january of 2020 you guys were now living apart uh on january 11th 2020 i texted him and told him i was going to go to edmonton to get some help i packed very little <laughs> and i did not go to Edmonton to get some help. I went to Edmonton to be completely separated from anyone who could try and prevent me from drinking and from my ultimate goal of, I wanted this to be over. I could, I was starting to see the toll that it was taking on my family, on my kids, on my parents, my sister and my friends. Like I have, there was one night four of my friends, three of my friends came and like dragged me in off the street at four in the morning and like force fed me and tried to talk to me and see like, can we get you some help? And I could see that I just wasn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I wanted to die. And I didn't want to die here. I didn't want anyone that knew me or loved me to find me. Uh, so that was my mission. I was going to go party until I died. I wanted, I wanted to feel nothing and I wanted to die feeling nothing. And that's, that's when you went on the 10 day long bender. That was my 10 day bender. 10 day bender and tried hard drugs for the first time. Yes. Right. I did. Yes. Um, I never did it before alcohol was it just did it for me but uh during this time the group that i was hanging out with uh got a got a baggie of it and i'm like well i'm not doing that and they're like you don't have to <laughs> and then you know a few drinks in and i'm like where is it i'll try it <laughs> so like i don't i don't even know looking back on that it's like wow so what caused the the 10 day bender to come to an end um so 
Because you had mentioned, I think that you at this time did have your cell phone. I did. It, it had I been blowing up, but you were yeah. like, I'm just not dealing with that. I'm focused yes. on this good time. <laughs> yeah. But something changed yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I was being just swarmed with texts and calls and threats and pleas and, you know, mm-hmm. anything that you would say to someone you loved who just completely abandoned their life. Uh, and all of them just felt like, wow, because that helps, you know, like, don't, yeah. don't come at me like that. Like, I just, so I just would rather have not dealt with it. So I didn't mm-hmm. respond to most of them. I just kind of like let it ride out until I got one text message from my dad. And it was the only text message he sent me in those 10 days that I was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back on that, I can't, I can't really wrap my head around what it must have been like for him to watch my mom, you know, like, Mm -hmm. where's my kid? And uh, he could have said some really awful things. He could have, he could have told me that my mom doesn't deserve this and that she deserves more and that I'm killing them and that I'm breaking her heart and that, you know, he could have, he could have, made me feel like every other text was making me feel, mm-hmm. but he didn't. And that was the, that was the first little light switch, I guess, that mm-hmm. came on. And I think shortly after that, your, your aunt, I believe. Yes. Texted and yes. asked to bring um, you back to Edmonton? She wanted to take me out for breakfast. I was in Edmonton at this time. Okay. She wanted to take me for breakfast. Uh, at this point, I don't think I'd eaten mm-hmm. in 10 days or slept. Um, and it was whatever, you know, just how my dad, how his text message just hit me mm-hmm. saying, just grace. It was just speaking grace over me that I didn't know I could have. I didn't know I just, I didn't believe I deserved it. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, Deanna reached out and asked to take me for breakfast, uh, it went against my plan completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, something in me just felt like I should go. And I did, I, I met her at Denny's <laughs> and I was a wreck. Like, I did not look like myself. I was very sick looking, very pale, uh, trembling. It just felt like everything was on fire. It felt, it felt like I was burning from the inside out mm-hmm. and everything was hurting. And we sat there and before we, before we ate our food, they, um, they both held my hand, her and her husband. and. And they prayed and they were both crying and I'm just sitting here like, uh, like this is the first time I've been like, I'm, I'm stuck in this booth (laughs) and they're, and they're sad and they're sad because of me Mm -hmm. and I don't like it. And I'm, I'm sort of sober enough to feel it. I don't want to. 
Um, after we ate, she looked at me and she said, can I take you to the hospital? And I just said, okay. And so that's where. And then what happened once you got to the hospital? Um, I waited for a while in the waiting room before I was called back. But when the triage nurse pulled me in to ask like why I was there today, uh, I remember saying, if you do not admit me in this hospital tonight, you will be scraping my body up off some street in downtown Edmonton Mm -hmm. tonight. Like, you're either going to admit me or I'm going to be dead because that's what I'm, that's what I set out to do and I'm done now. And they did some interviews. They pulled down some big head honcho people and they did an interview with me by myself. Uh, They took Deanna in and did an interview with her by herself. Uh, They had us do an interview together and it was more so just kind of getting an idea of what's going on. Like what's, what's really wrong with this person? Because, mm-hmm. you know, they asked me like, have you been drinking? Yes. Have you been doing drugs? Yes. <laughs> Are you suicidal? Yes. So it's just like, <laughs> and it, you know, <laughs> um, so they needed to kind of get an idea of what, if they did admit me, what is the treatment plan? Mm-hmm. Um, So they came to my little cot. Deanna stayed with me the entire day. She just landed in Edmonton from a a vacation. Like she was down south and she still had to drive all the way back to Fort McMurray, which is like four and a half hours. And she sat all day in the hospital with me. She was like, I am not leaving you until you are admitted. And her husband sat outside the hospital in the car. And I feel like maybe he was just sitting there waiting for her. But at the same time, I think maybe it was like, in case she runs, chase her. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't run. <laughs> but, you didn't run. Uh, I didn't know. Um, but you were placed. Me. You were placed on uh, month on hold, right? Yes. And and what what else did that entail? Like I think. Um. So you- for three days before the hold, I was being pumped full of different fluids and stuff to help with delirium and seizures uh, to prevent those things from happening because my the things that were coming in like back in my blood work were just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I was transferred into the psychiatric unit mm-hmm. at the Grey Nuns Hospital in Edmonton. Um, and that's where I spent a month. And then uh, about three weeks in, I was told that I was being transferred to a treatment center. And up until this point, I... Like after a week being on a hold, if you have good behavior, you start to get passive. Mm -hmm. So I would take the pass and I would learn, like, we're not going to black out today, but we're going to drink enough to feel it. And like, it's just insane. Mm -hmm. Like the insanity is actually wild. And I would drink every single pass that I could get out on. I was drinking and I would slip under the radar when I came back in and take my sleeping pill like a good little girl and go to bed you know like just such a such a deviant little thing (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah so when they told me I was being transferred to a treatment center I was Mm -hmm. like oh like for trauma 
Like her? No. Sweetheart, she said. She called me sweetheart. She said, no, sweetheart, for addiction. I was like, huh. Oh, I don't want to go. <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> oh. And so, so, yeah, a week later, that's where I am. That's where I landed. Uh-huh. And that was in, that was at Thorpe? Yeah. That, yeah. And how did that go? <laughs> Great. <laughs> I lasted three weeks of a six-week stay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kicked out. Because my first day there, you know, when you walk into a treatment center with the thought of, I don't belong here. This is not, you know, this is not for me. I feel like when people end up going to treatment, it's a lot of times that happens because you're forced to by your job. But when someone goes that isn't being forced by their job, usually it's a personal choice. Mm-hmm. I wasn't being forced by my job. I didn't have a job. I was a stay-at-home mom my kids' entire lives. And it wasn't a personal choice. I was being brought there. Mm-hmm. So I had to go. And, uh, yeah, when it came my turn to state my name and the nature of my addiction, I, I didn't, I didn't know if the words would come out, but they Mm -hmm. did. And the freedom I felt in that was huge. And I remember, um, my counselor talking to me saying that she, cause they take, they keep in touch with your family Mm -hmm. and, um, they were talking to my mom on the phone. And she was like, your mom's so cute. She called and she was like, has she said she's an alcoholic yet? And when I said yes, she yelled, <laughs> praise Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. But yeah, that was kind of like where the recognition started to set in. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, it was complete denial. Yeah. Um, but you lasted only three weeks out of the six. Yes. Right. So what happened there? Like, did you, in our initial conversation, you mentioned having gotten kicked out. Like, was that just mm-hmm. because of the sort of non-cooperative attitude or? Yeah, non-cooperative attitude, not really complying to all of the rules. Okay. And then you lasted how long after you, you when came When I out? got out? Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was in March. I relapsed again less than a month after. Mm-hmm. I drank for two weeks, or sorry, two months. Yeah, I drank for two months at that point, and I was wrecked. As soon as I got home from rehab, I didn't know what end was up. I was no longer welcome in my home with my children. So I had to live with my parents. I shaved my head. Hmm. Like, I just... <laughs> I went off the deep end Mm -hmm. and uh, my drinking was insane. I, I tried this medication that's supposed to block your receptors in your brain. So you're not supposed to like enjoy drinking. I'm like, I don't do it for joy. Mm -hmm. I do it because I don't want to feel anything. So the fact that I don't feel joy that's kind of the point. It's a, <laughs> I don't want to feel any of it. <laughs> so that didn't work very well. And uh, 
yeah, it got really, really messy for a while. And then I cleaned up and I was sober for a month. And that's when I kind of started a relationship with somebody who was also sober, but not. And uh, things went horribly wrong for me there. Mm -hmm. That's the deepest part of all of it. And I didn't even know that, that your rock bottom could have a basement with like an underground cellar, <laughs> but it does. Um, is this a, is this a general, the guy that you met at AA who was seven yeah. years? Right. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, so you went on a trip with him, um, yeah. and that went horribly, horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so you drank for about a month in August of 2020. Um, all of August. Pardon me? All of, all the month of August. All the month of August. Okay. And sorry, I'm, my notes are a little bit sketchy, but okay. you're at this point, I think you found out uh, your husband was taking steps to have the kids removed from your care. Yes. So the last few days of August, um, I I was exposing the kids to things that they shouldn't have been exposed to. I wasn't I was not safe for mm -hmm. my children. I was drinking to the point of blacking out and then feeling like I needed to eat onion rings. And so I put them on broil and you know, like you're gonna burn the house down. And I was I was just exposing them to things that they really should not have been exposed to, but it never ever dawned on me that maybe this is too much or too far. Maybe I'm taking things too far. I just, I felt like I had already lost everything that I loved by losing my marriage. I felt like everything I, I had was gone. And uh, I got an email from, from a lawyer stating that I no longer had custody of my children and that they would live solely with their father. I would get visitation rights three times a week for two hours. And I had to be 24 hours sober before each visitation. Um, and if I ever wanted to have custody of them again, I would have to complete a 12 step program and be sober. Mm -hmm. And so for you, was that the turning point, as we call it on yeah. the show? Yeah, uh, that was where everything changed. Okay. And so what uh, what steps did you take? Uh, like, did you enter a 12-step program and successfully complete it? Yes. So um, I had to go sign my children over to their father on September 1st. That was the date that they had set for me to come and sign at the lawyer's office. And I, I was very drunk for the few days leading, oh, leading up to that point. Um, but on September 1st, I somehow managed to drive myself to the lawyer's office uh, and I signed the papers and I'm like, well, my first visitation is in two days. I have to be sober for 24 hours. So I guess I can go home and drink. And instead I drove to a meeting. 
and I've been sober since that day. Mm-hmm. And I did complete a 12 step program and I was regretted custody of my kids uh, two months later. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, so how was, like, how has your first year in recovery been? There was a lot of recognition, a lot of like things that I didn't even know were things that um, affected my recovery completely, just my life. Mm-hmm. Not even, not even, not even addiction, but just like who I was as a person, the things that I carried with me through my life and allowed to just manifest into these massive monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, now having to sit and face those, that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. It was huge. Um, I read something once that said healing is terrifying for people who do not know who they are without their pain. And I felt that on so mm-hmm. many levels because I really didn't. I didn't know. And for the first time in my life, after going through everything that I had gone through, I was taking steps to understand what those, what those monsters were, giving them a face and a name and mm-hmm. breaking them down. And so in that time frame, like in this first year of recovery, you also went back to college. I did. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I actually completed it this time. Um, I have, I actually graduated um, with honors. So when I say like I didn't apply myself, like I actually, once I applied myself, I did really well. But yeah, I have a diploma in um, addictions and mental health. That's amazing. Good for you. That's been huge. Yeah. the, The learning even in that of like, I was like taking notes, not because I needed to like remember them for studying, but because I was like, this is me. Like (laughs) I needed. Yeah. Did you, did you find that helped with your healing as well? Oh, it was a massive part of my healing and just the understanding, you know, like when you're reading about what this actually does to people, but you're, you're the people that it did it to. there's like all these puzzle pieces are like actually flowing together so quickly. And you're like, Oh my gosh, like I just need more. (laughs) And it was huge. It was huge for me. I absolutely loved what I studied every, every bit of it. It didn't feel like work. It felt like, it felt like it was just affirming everything that Mm -hmm. I needed. And so how is your relationship with your kids? It's, we have a relationship now different than we have ever had. Um, I get to actually know who I'm raising, not just, you know, these are Charlie and Max. I get to know who they are as individuals and what they like and what they don't like and Mm -hmm. what makes them feel loved and what makes them feel safe. And for a long time, I know that I didn't, make them feel safe but now I am I'm their home and I get to be their home because of recovery and they they're every bit involved in my recovery Mm -hmm. as as I am this is a this is a family disease and Mm -hmm. your family needs to recover from it Mm -hmm. it's not just 
it's not just me. It's not just the addict or the alcoholic. It's the family too. And so those kids, they celebrate right along with me. They're, you know, they're so proud and they recognize the milestones and the birthdays. And it's just, yeah, just knowing how, how proud they are and that they see me. And for so long, I was so scared that the things I exposed them to would, um, that would be at the forefront and they would never fully trust me again, or that we would never really have a great relationship that I did too much damage, Mm -hmm. but it was the complete opposite. I feel like because I was so open and vulnerable and transparent with them about my recovery journey all throughout, they just saw all the pieces of the mother that they knew and loved come back together, but in this form that they'd never seen before a form that could be complete and whole on her own without needing someone to validate that or to find that or hold it together for me. Mm-hmm. I could do it. Beautiful. And yeah, we're, my home is a, is a home full of joy. It's just full of love. You know, the three of us, we've created something extremely special and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'd go through all of it again just to be where I am at today with those two. Beautiful. I'm really happy for you guys. Thank you. Um, so I think we're going to move into uh, some comments. Um, and here we go. Here we go. <laughs> okay, our first comment's coming in from Kelsey. And she says, your comment hit home, quote, nobody can talk to me about drinking. It felt like an attack because it became a massive part of myself. To separate myself from it was just too difficult, unquote. Thanks for putting that into words that I think spoke true for so many of us. I'm sorry, that was a tongue twister for me. (laughs) (laughs) And next comment is coming in from Candace Noble. And she says, sending you all my love. <laughs> is that somebody you know? That's my cousin. Oh, lovely. So she goes on here and she says, yay, you did. Graduate with honors because you are a badass. <laughs> she would. <laughs> <laughs> and Darlene Maynard says, congratulations, you're an awesome mom. Mm. Is that your aunt? No. No. Um, oh, someone I worked with. Oh, okay. Okay. Friend. Okay. But I think that's about the end of comments. So we're going to ask you if there's anything that you'd like to leave us with today. I think if there's one thing that would have impacted me in the depths of active addiction, if someone said it to me and it would have, you know, something that actually would have penetrated that I want to say to people out there who are still struggling and still hurting is that you are deserving of every ounce of grace and every ounce of joy and prosperity and, and work that it's going to take to get yourself sober and in recovery you're worth the effort you're worth your own effort 
And that effort does not need to come from any other source. It's yours. You need to take it and claim it and build your life on a foundation that is your own, that no one can take from you. And when it's yours and it's just yours, no one can shake it. Just build it, build it for you, build it for the people that are holding on to you and understand that even though you feel so brutally alone, you are held by so many people who would just stand by you and support you. Um, even if it's not your family, even if you don't have friends, this sober community is huge and we would love nothing more than to celebrate. That's what we do. We celebrate recovery, you know, mm -hmm. like that's, that's what we live for because if it weren't for recovery, we wouldn't be alive. Mm -hmm. So it's worth celebrating and you are worth the effort. Very beautifully put. Thank you. Well, uh, that's, that's us for today. So we're going to let you go. Enjoy the rest of your day. I think you have some Thanks time so off right this week. I do. Yeah. Good. Well, hopefully the weather's nicer there than it is here and you get to enjoy it. <laughs> it's full of snow. But ah, us too. <laughs> it's fine. I have puzzles. <laughs> okay, my friend. Take care. Okay. Thank you. You too. Thank you. There is power in numbers. If you'd like to contribute to ending the stigma around emotional pain, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow on Twitch, Facebook, and Instagram. Like and comment your thoughts on our posts. Let us come together with our lived and living experience as a resource that has the power to engage new thought processes, to promote new ideas, to broaden the spectrum of care, and to show the world that we can recover. There is a safer way, and we are here to show you how. Take care.